Hollywood is making a movie about CBS newsman Dan Rather. I can't wait. I got my sleeping bag for the ticket line, got my bucket of popcorn, got my Dan Rather t-shirt and merchandise. I can't remember the last time I was this excited without actually being inside the Department of Motor Vehicles. The movie is about that time Rather got so desperate to lay a journalistic glove on a thoroughly uncorrupt and honest President George W. Bush that he reached back to an incident that occurred when the then nearly 60-year-old Bush was in his 20s and allegedly did something, something, something. Using his super-duper secret journalistic techniques, Rather managed to secure some completely fraudulent Bush-damning documents that were so skillfully manufactured they were exposed as fake 15 minutes later by a 10-year-old girl using my little iPad. Rather, as you'll remember, at first insisted that no, the documents were real. Then he was forced to admit the documents were fake, but insisted the story he had made up was real. Then he was forced to resign in disgrace and humiliation, although he was heralded as a great and honest newscaster by Brian Williams, who remembered how they had fought side by side in the Battle of Isengard. Rather than sued CBS, but his suit was thrown out of court by a judge who wrote in his decision, quote, <laughs> unquote. Today, an elder statesman of 83, Rather has moved beyond the incident and found inner peace in his role as a bitter, querulous old man who keeps insisting that the fake story was real. So you might ask, what's the movie going to be about? Well, of course, it's a screwy Judd Apatow comedy with Seth Rogen playing the gormless Rather as he stumbles from mishap to mishap, following what he thinks is a nose for news, but turns out in a hilarious reversal to be a left-wing bias so slanted he ultimately slides down the slope of it into a big smelly pile of his own dishonesty. Nah, I made that up. In fact, Robert Redford, also known as the Sundance Old Man, will portray the misguided pseudojourn with Kate Blanchett playing his partner in bias, Mary Mapes, in what The Hollywood Reporter describes as, quote, a narrative that depicts them as courageous reporters betrayed by a corporation that cared more about its standing in Washington than protecting its journalists. Thus, the movie is called Truth, because they had to get truth in there somewhere, and the title was the only place it would fit. But really, truth will be part of a long Hollywood tradition, lying, or to put it more exactly, rewriting conservative reality into left-wing fantasy, which, come to think of it, is exactly what Rather did. So Hollywood may be just the right place for his story to be told. Dishonest leftists telling dishonest leftist stories about dishonest leftists telling dishonest leftist stories and an infinite regress of dishonest leftism. As they used to say at CBS, that's the way it is. More isn't, but we say it is. Like, whatever. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. It's the last Andrew Clavin Show of this week, and we'll be back on... Oh, will, will we, are we here for Columbus Day? We will be here for Columbus Day to celebrate the wiping out of na primitive Native people in the name of civilization, which I'm completely, completely in for an iPhone. How many people? You know, they they once asked they once asked the novelist William Faulkner if he had to save an old woman who was drowning or the complete works of Shakespeare, which he would save, and he said Shakespeare is worth any number of old ladies. And I I think I feel the same way about the, those old civilizations. You know, if you want to hold on to a continent. You have to invent the wheel <laughs> first. Did you ever see uh, 
Apocalypto. Is yeah. uh, that, I mean, that shows you just what those civilizations were like when the, you know, when the Westerners show up to wipe them out. You're like, good idea. <laughs> so, all right, the big cultural news of the day is that the Nobel Prize in Literature went to Svetlana Aleksevich, which is great because now I'll have something to read when I'm dead, which is about the time I plan to get to the novels of Svetlana Aleksevich. You know, you know, they're never going to give it to Tom Wolfe, who's probably the only uh, living novelist who deserves it. Uh, Michel Huillebecq is an interesting French novelist. People should read him here. You know, his novels, every one of his novels is about the same thing. It's about a decadent Frenchman who sleeps with everybody he can get his hands with, hands on, and then Muslims kill everybody. So it's like just a metaphor for Europe. It's like this completely decadent, hedonist society being killed by, by Muslims. He's not going to win. Tom Wolfe's not going to win. Hey. Oh, hey, there's Jasper. That's Jasper the Wonder Dog. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, the, <laughs> the other one is, is Cormac McCarthy, who I, I swear, if Cormac McCarthy is not a stone right winger, I don't know how to read a novel. And he never talks about it because I think he wants to win the Nobel Prize. So I'm hoping he'll win and then get up and give his speech, go, fooled you, you know. <laughs> I just really put it to him. Anyway, there are only, there are only, there's only one thing you need to know about the Nobel Prize for Literature, five words. Leo Tolstoy never won one. <laughs> that's, that's it. You know, he, Tolstoy never won one. He, in fact, he lost to the, fame, the wonderful writer Christian Momsen, uh, who I know you, I'm sure you have a complete Christian Momsen collection on your shelves. James Joyce never won. Mark Twain never won. Uh, Proust, Chekhov never won. It's basically a political prize. I mean, they give it, this, this woman, as far as I can tell, is a, believes in freedom, has been writing. She's from Belarus or something. She's been writing against the uh, tyrants. I'm not saying she's a, a bad person. Uh, but, you know, it's like Vaclav Havel and uh, Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison is a a good novelist uh, who happens to be a black woman, so she got the prize for being a black woman, basically, and that's that's what it is. And it's just it's just a political you know a political prize. It's not an artistic prize, which brings me back to Dan Rather. I don't want to beat a dead horse. Um, what was that old joke? Uh, you're a you're a bestial, sadistic necrophiliac, but that's beating a dead horse. Uh, this is an old Woody Allen uh, Woody Allen joke, um, but. But, you know, this is, this is something that Hollywood has been doing with absolute fervor for years and years, is rewriting conservative reality and turning it into liberal fantasy. I mean, the last really big one was Argo, and a lot of conservatives were fooled by Argo. Uh, the Ben Affleck picture won the Oscar. They were, they were fooled by Argo because it had an all-American hero rescuing hostages from the Iranian Muslims. And I thought, wow, that's an all-American story. If you watch Argo closely, the history of that time is completely rewritten. They make the hostage crisis our fault for our meddling in Iranian politics. They make Jimmy Carter comes off smelling like a rose. I mean, Jimmy Carter was a complete weakling and incompetent in that situation. It went on for days and days and days and only ended when Ronald Reagan took office. On the day Ronald Reagan took office and the Ayatollah Khomeini looked at Ronald Reagan and thought, hmm, I think I'm going to release the hostages before I get a missile up my nose, you know? And I think that in, in the movie, it ends with Jimmy Carter making this statesman-like speech and all this stuff, and the left has been doing this repeatedly. They did it all, all through the war uh, on terror. What is that? It sounds like they're grinding, uh, grinding Englishmen to make their bread. 
Uh, all through the war on terror, they rewrote the war on terror. They had green zone, remember? Everybody knew, every piece of intelligence we had said there were WMD in Iraq. But in green zone, Matt Damon heroically finds out it was all a Republican conspiracy. Lions for lambs. Tom Cruise is an evil Republican who has a conspiracy to start a war. They've been continually, I mean, the biggest one, the biggest one they've done, um, well, they do it every week on Law and Order. Every week on Law and Order, some, something with a right-wing message is turned into a left-wing story. They, I remember the biggest one, the one that drove me crazy was Terry Schiavo. Remember Terry Schiavo, this brain-damaged woman, and I'm not taking sides on the issue of what should have happened, but they judiciously starved this woman to death while the evangelical Christians are praying, saying, please, respect life, respect life. Law and Order, they rewrite the story, a Terry Scheibel-like woman is there. An evangelical Christian is the person who commits murder. So it's like just a slight, it's a little change. You know, it's just like, just like a little, you know, I like the idea that there's an evangelical Christian, but instead of being for life, could he kill somebody? You know, that would, that would be so much more realistic. That's, that's Hollywood working. The biggest one of all, of course, is John F. Kennedy. And this happened from the moment John F. Kennedy was assassinated. John F. Kennedy was a ferocious, ferocious Cold Warrior. And he was killed by a communist. He was killed by a guy who tried to defect to the Soviets. I don't think even the Soviets wanted him. He was concerned about what Kennedy was doing in Cuba. And he killed the president. He took a rifle and killed the president. From the minute that happened, the news, the left-wing news media began to rewrite the story. It, it happened almost immediately because they could not stomach the fact that a left-winger had killed their idol, Kennedy, because of Kennedy's essentially staunch right-wing position defending the world, again, defending freedom against the slave state of the Soviet Union. Immediately, they had hate. They had stories saying hate, hatred, hatred killed JFK. Hatred killed JFK. And they would show the anti-JFK posters then went up in Dallas by, by racists who didn't like the fact that he was liberal about civil rights. And so they would, they said, hey, and then it was this big conspiracy, and finally Oliver Stone made that picture JFK, which also, I think, did that won, that won an Oscar too, I think. And it, at least it won Oscars, which had this crazy theory that businessmen and LBJ conspired to kill Kennedy because he was going to disband the CIA and pull our troops out of Vietnam, which was utterly absurd. And, and the thing is, they do this, they do this so... Um, so assiduously, with so much force, not only do they do they do it to themselves, they stop us from doing it. Uh, my pal Cyrus Nawasta made a great film called The Path to 9-11, which was a massively popular TV movie that showed that Bill Clinton neglected to kill Osama bin Laden when he had a chance several times because he was too occupied with the Monica Lewinsky scandal. This this got huge ratings on TV. It has still not been released on DVD, and it will never be released on DVD as long as Clinton's pals are running uh, Disney, which I guess is the one in uh, ABC Disney, I guess is the one that has the, the rights to it. So that's never been released. Uh, a, another pal, uh, uh, Joel Cerno, made a Kennedy docudrama that was a TV movie. It was actually pretty flattering to the Kennedys, I thought, but it did show that Joe Kennedy was a mobster. Kennedy pals knocked it off the popular History Channel and sent it spinning into some uh, small cable station where nobody could find it. And they do this. There was this one fair game about Valerie Plame and Joseph Wilson. And Joseph Wilson, you'll remember, wrote this thing saying that 
there were no WMDs in Iraq, and it was all a fraud. And he said we, that Saddam Hussein hadn't tried to get uranium in Africa, and he had proved this beyond a shadow of a doubt, wrote an op-ed for it. It all turned out to be false. So the media, is, rather than saying, oh, Bush was right, what Bush said was true, invented this complete nonsense scandal about exposing Valerie Plame, a minor CIA agent who wasn't even in the field, staged this huge investigation which Bush walked into like a rat in a trap. And they got nobody except poor Scooter Libby, who happened to forget what he had said one day and said something different on another uh, on another day. And then they made this, this picture fair game in which, you know, Dick Cheney was basically conspiring against these people to, to keep the Iraq's conspiracy going and all this stuff. And Joseph Wilson, when somebody said to him, nobody's going to see this movie, he said, he said, for people who have short memories or don't read, this is the only way they'll remember the period, which was exactly right. And not only, not only do they do, do they rewrite history, not only does the left rewrite history, but they rewrite great stuff that conservatives make that are, pop that are popular things, like Star Trek is a perfect example. It's a really good article about this. Really, soon, one day soon, we will have the capacity to have guests and interviews and things like that. On this, I would bring in Bill Whittle, who knows more about uh, Star Trek than any grown-ass man really should know. <laughs> I mean, he knows everything there is to know about, about Star Trek. But there was a really interesting article about this in the Claremont Review of Books where the guy talked about the fact that the original Star Trek had what we would call classical liberal values, which would be our values, conservative values. Classical liberal values are what conservatives basically believe in. So when some hippies on some strange planet had this absolute Edenic Eden, Kirk would just go down and destroy it so they would be free and not be, you know, backward. Then they started, when Gene Roddenberry, the guy who created Star Trek, died, they started remaking these things and doing the same thing they do to history. They started rewriting it. So by the time they made this one Star Trek insurrection, uh, it was all about how the Eden it starts out with this beautiful Eden, and they say, well, yeah, we have technology, but we don't use it, you know? And you remember yesterday we were talking about the Martian, and we were talking about all these great science fiction pictures, the Martian interstellar. Uh, Mathis reminded me of Gravity was another one where they show people solving problems, having faith in God and being led by faith in God to have faith in themselves. But this was like they, they even rewrote Star Trek to make it this primitivism, which of course found its absolute avatar, this primitivism found its absolute avatar in Avatar, which is had the absolute left-wing dream of a primitive society that had all the great things that you get from oil. So it had a tree with lights on it, and you could fly on dragons. And I thought, like, hey, we can have lights and flying now. You just need oil. That's the way, that's the way you fly and have lights. So the left has been rewriting history, uh, gutting every good thing that we make into, um, you know, into, into a vision of them, themselves, of their own regression, their regressiveness and primitivity. And that's why we'll be back on Monday to celebrate Columbus and civilization. <laughs> Hooray, which brings us all back in a full circle. And now we're going to, I have a, a rather long um, Stuff I Like. We've been doing Halloween Stuff I Like, but I like to end the week with music. So I'm going to play what I think may be my single favorite cut of American popular music in the world, except for maybe 10 other single favorite cuts of popular music. This is Stompin' at the Savoy with Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. 
I believe that these two, the two albums they made, they made three albums, but I believe two of those albums are the greatest popular music that has ever been recorded. A collaboration between Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong, two voices that should never gone to get, have gone together. I was actually fired once for playing Ella Fitzgerald on a radio station. I was, through a series of unfortunate events, I became the only white DJ on a black soul station. I was on overnight. So nobody knew I was there, you know, because it was like, it was literally like from two in the morning till six in the morning. And the entire station was black, black except for me. You know? I used to say I've got about as much soul as a J.C. Penney saddle shoe, you know, but I would, but I would do my best to, to play, you know, the music that I loved. I mean, how many millions or thousands of great African-American musical artists are there? So I was happy to play black music, but I wasn't always playing soul music and it was a soul station. 99% of the people at the station and I got along great. They were nice to me, it was funny, it was funny that there was this one white face walking around playing this music and we were, we'd kid with each other and we had a great time and we were all friends. One guy was a black activist. There was one guy in the station who was a black activist. And if I could build a trap door in the floor of reality, I would rig it to open whenever an activist of any sort walked over it. Like it was a black activist, boom, boom, oh my goodness, that's too bad. That's a, you know, like, hi, I'm a gay actor. Boom, oh Lord, that's terrible. You know, feminist, boom. Because, because if you only know people through the activists that you see on TV, you would hate everybody. You would hate black people, you would hate gay people, you would hate women. If that, if that was all you knew, it was activists. And this guy came down and he heard me, I, I guess he wandered in one night when I was doing the overnight and he heard me playing Ella Fitzgerald maybe the greatest American singer, popular singer of all time, maybe, at least one of them. And he said, why are you playing that? This is a soul station. I said, hey, if Ella Fitzgerald hasn't got soul, you know, I, I don't know who, who does. And I made, I, I made a joke or, or something about being the token white guy. And this guy did that black activist thing. They didn't have the, t the term microaggression then. But he started picking on, that's not a funny joke. And, that's... and I, in my usual lovable way, said, you know, let me give you a suggestion. <laughs> If you don't think my joke is funny, don't laugh. And then I made an anatomical suggestion that you know, might, have, might have been physically impossible. I don't know. Uh, so the next day I was called in before the boss and they said, you know, you're playing Ella Fitzgerald on a soul station. And so I resigned. So you are looking at a martyr to Ella Fitzgerald. The, what you will hear on Stompin' the Savoy, it was 1957, they brought these two guys in, the two, two of the greatest uh, American popular musicians ever, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong, and they let them rip. They just let them uh, jam. And this is the rehearsal. And you can hear, it starts out with Ella singing, and the minute she opens her mouth, you will hear a bell-like voice that simply does not exist anywhere else on this plane of existence. And then she starts to scat, and she was the greatest scat singer ever. I mean, she was just one of the great scat singers. And then you hear Louis Armstrong. And Louis Armstrong, we were talking about this with comedians, this thing happens in American culture where people get denatured, you know, they get, uh, they get vanilla-ized, you know. And a lot of people remember Louis Armstrong from his Hello Dolly days, you know, Hello Dolly and all this stuff, and he would stand on stage, and everybody loved him and all this. Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby, single-handedly almost, invented American music. And Bing Crosby went on to become that the same thing, you know, boo, 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 and White Christmas and all this stuff. Bing Crosby, when he started out, was one of the most inventive jazz singers ever. And these two guys brought black and white influences together, and they kind of invented American music. When 
Armstrong starts to play, you will hear that unmistakable trumpet with all the extra notes cut out. Uh, one of the things he did was trumpet playing used to be this kind of uh, acrobatic thing where you'd hear the, you know, the riffs going, the rapid fire fingers. He just cut all that out as few as notes as possible. And finally, after you hear all this great stuff, the two of them start jamming together. And you can just hear they're making stuff up and they haven't got it and they keep you know, going off down dead ends that don't work. It's still one of the greatest uh, songs ever, one of the greatest recordings ever. So ending this day and leading into wonderful Columbus Day where we celebrate the destruction of the Native American peoples, uh, here is Stompin' at the Savoy with Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong from 1957. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you again next week. Savoy, the home of sweet romance. Savoy, it wins you at a glance. Savoy gives happy feet a chance to dance. You're just like a clinging vine Your lips so warm and sweet as wine Your cheeks so soft and close to mine Divine